Ezekiel 48 is our text tonight. I'd like to have you turn there. This is our last study in the book of Ezekiel, no matter what. We're going to get through this if it takes us a few hours. No, just what, it really shouldn't take us that long. <laughs> All right, you guys know me already and trying to help me along, I know. <laughs> but from the time that we began chapter 40 to this chapter here, we have been given a vision by God, a vision that came to the person of Ezekiel, the prophet, the prophet of the children of Judah in captivity in Nebuchadnezzar's Babylon. And uh, there, the, captive, the captives of Judah were going through so many different things in their lives. Primarily, of course, they hung their harps on the, on the willows because they realized how much they had sinned before God to come to that place of being in captivity. At the same time, there were many in captivity who continued to believe that God was going to be gracious to them and take them out of captivity early and be giving them every bit of provision that they needed to go back to their land. But the prophet was real clear to them. It's not going to happen. The promise was that they were going to be in captivity for 70 years. And they just needed to settle in and trust in the Lord. So the Lord dealt with all of those things that they were going through, all of the things that were happening in, in Jerusalem, that were, there were still people there. Uh, but uh, God would take Ezekiel a few times back to Jerusalem by vision so that he could see all of the causes of the problem, which was really coming from the priesthood. The priesthood would go through the motions of bringing the people there to the place of sacrifice, but then they themselves were worshiping idols, even within the temple confines. And this, of course, was something that brought the wrath of the Lord upon his own people. God gave them opportunity after opportunity. And now they were to make their homes in Babylon until the Lord would come. But one thing the Lord did do, he would show the, the prophet to tell the people Israel was going to rise up again. The people were going to be restored. Nations were going to come against them, but God was going to be on their side. And in chapters 40 through 48, God has shown them a vision to be brought to them by the prophet Ezekiel, the vision of the temple of Messiah's kingdom, the temple of the millennial kingdom, the thousand-year reign of Christ on the earth, which has yet to happen, but is going to happen very shortly. It's going to happen soon. We... We, we have to believe that. We've been through this long enough. 2,000 years. People have been given the opportunity to know Christ. 
For 2,000 years, the gospel has gone forth. And there'll be a specific day, a specific time, a specific moment that God is going to say, that's it. And Jesus is going to come for his people, the church. He's going to come to take his bride home. And that begins then the seven years of tribulation. But after the seven years of tribulation, the promise by Jesus himself was that he would come again. And he would rule and reign in Jerusalem for a thousand years. Things are going to be so different when he comes. Because there's going to be a new topography. There's going to be a new landscape. And the hill upon which Jesus died will become the very place for this temple, but it will be raised up by God above all, above all mountains. Even Everest is going to have to bow before this place. It won't be the same. And Jesus will rule and reign for a thousand years from the temple in Jerusalem that he himself will build in a magnificent way. As we arrive now to the last part of chapter 47, which we studied last week, and the first part of chapter 48, we see now the distribution of the land to the children of Israel and to the tribes of Israel that will be there in that time. Remember that there's something, there's something marvelous about the fact that the Lord has promised that there would be tribes again. And they will know who, which tribe to which they belong, the Jewish people. And it's, it's going to be better than, you know, ancestry DNA and 23 and me and all of those. Because God is the one who's going to be the one choosing and placing them back in their land. And so as we begin in chapter 48, it says in verse 1, and we're going to read verses 1 through 7, and then I'll explain now these are the names of the tribes. From the north end of the coast of the way of Hethlon, as one goeth to Hamath, Hazarenon, the border of Damascus north, northward to the coast of Hamath, for these are his sides east and west, a portion for Dan. So he's mentioning these places to show you that we are in the northern part of the land of Israel. Damascus is one key marker for us. And the tribe that will be in the first and top portion of Israel will be Dan. And then in verse 2 it says, And by the border of Dan, from the east side unto the west side, a portion for Asher. Now I believe that you have a map from last week if you still have it. Again, you'll notice that they are east to west from the Great Sea, which is the Mediterranean. Uh, Mediterranean, maybe I'll start on this. Mediterranean for you guys. All the way over to uh, to the other sea, or actually the Jordan, and down to the Dead Sea. By the border of Dan, from the east unto the west side, a portion for Asher. And by the border of Asher, from the east side, even unto the west side, a portion for Naphtali. And by the border of Naphtali, from the east side unto the west side, a portion for Manasseh. And by the border of Manasseh, from the east side unto the west side, a portion for Ephraim, and by the border of Ephraim from the east side even unto the west side a portion for Reuben. 
and by the border of Reuben from the east side unto the west side a portion for Judah. The way this is written is so that you can get an idea that everything that is given is given equally to these tribes. So in this last section of chapter 47, right before this, the Lord set the boundaries of the land, boundaries that would be far different from what they were when Israel and Judah were conquered by Assyria and Babylon respectively. And as I said last time, the land was described with names that existed during Ezekiel's day. And because of the detail given, these passages should be taken literally as describing the borders of Israel as they will be. So this is not uh, metaphoric, it's not symbolic, it is real. It is what is going to happen in the days to come. And one of the reasons why we know it's has, it has to happen is because those borders aren't that way today. And there are people who will teach that, you know, Israel is not the Israel of, 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 uh, of the scriptures. Whatever Israel they think <clears throat> is being talked about in the future is, is some metaphor for uh, uh, the church as, as the re, re, uh, replacement theology people think and, and many, many others. But folks, as we studied back in chapter 37 about the, about the dead bones rising out of the, out of the, uh, the ground and, and becoming the nation of Israel, coming out of the Holocaust as they did and, and beginning again the land of, of Israel, a 2,000-year-old 2000 language resurrected as well. Folks, these are significant. It never would have been except for God bringing it about. These are his people. This is why we need to understand the need to love Israel because God loves Israel. So not only will the land be distributed equally among the families of each tribe, but Gentile foreigners living among the Jewish people will also receive a portion of land. The obvious thing, of course, is that no foreigners will be living among God's people unless they have become true believers in Messiah. Unless they're true believers in Yeshua or Jesus, they're not, they're not going to be living among the people. You know, it's an obvious thing. So there'll be true believers living in the land for a thousand years with the tribes of Israel. And they're to be treated, by the way, as a matter of fact, that's what the scripture tells us when we studied this last week. They're to be treated as native-born Israelites and allowed to raise their families within the nation of Israel, as we saw from Leviticus and Numbers. So going all the way back to the law, these things made it very clear that those who have chosen to follow the God of Israel, they will live with Israel. So as we enter into the last chapter of this tremendous prophecy, the first seven verses describe the, the Lord allotting the land north of the holy city, the sacred district, to seven tribes. And we named them as we read the passage. Dan, Asher, Naphtali, uh, Manasseh, Ephraim, Reuben, and Judah. Now, the land to each of the tribes is sectioned off in rectangular units from north to south. It is significant where the tribes are to be located. Of the first seven that we read about, Dan will be located the furthest away from the temple, which of course symbolizes the very presence of God. In contrast to Judah, which will be located closest to the temple of the seven that were mentioned. The distance of the tribe of Dan from the temple is more than likely 
due to its deep involvement in idolatry in previous times. Consider, if you will, what took place in the time of the judges. If you go back to the times of the judges, Judges chapter 18, verses 30 and 31, listen just to this little passage. Now, I would encourage you to read the whole chapter, chapter 18, but because of time, I'm just giving you a little portion. Notice that it says, And the children of Dan set up the graven image, an image that was made by a, a, a prophet named Micah. And the children of Dan set up the graven image, and Jonathan, the son of Gershom, the son of Manasseh, he and his sons were priests to the tribe of Dan until the day of the captivity of the land. What's wrong with that picture? They were priests when they were not even of the house of priests. They were not even of the tribe of Levi. That's made pretty clear in this, aren't, isn't it? Now, the, some, will be, some have said that Manasseh is really just a... Uh, uh, there was an addition to a, the, the letter N to, to Moshe, and therefore they say Manasseh is actually Moses, uh, to hide, you know, the fact that his, his own sons, Jonathan, the son of Gershom, uh, you know, <clears throat> worshipped idols. <clears throat> but uh, here again, if, that, if that's the case, then still, even if it was a Levite, even if it was from that particular tribe, what's wrong with the picture? What are they doing worshiping an idol? So either way, they got caught with the hands in the cookie jar kind of thing. Verse 31 says, And they set them up, uh, Micah's uh, graven image, which he made all the time that the house of God was in Shiloh. See, the house of God was in Shiloh, which is not where they were. They were up north. And those of you who have been to Israel, you know, we've gone to that, to that place called Dan, and uh, we've seen the excavations of the place where Jeroboam actually built an altar unto the Lord, which brings us to 1 Kings chapter 12, because in 1 Kings chapter 12, verses 25 through 33, notice what it says. It says, then Jeroboam, who was the um, usurping, usurping king of the northern tribes of Israel. And then Jeroboam built Shechem in Mount Ephraim, or Ephraim, and, and dwelt therein, and went out from thence, and built Penuel. And Jeroboam said in his heart, Now shall the kingdom return to the house of David. If this people go up to do sacrifice in the house of the Lord at Jerusalem, then shall the heart of this people turn again unto their Lord, even unto Rehoboam king of Judah, and they shall kill me, and go again to Rehoboam king of Judah." Whereupon the king took counsel and made two calves of gold <clears throat> against the law and said unto them, It is too much for you to go up to Jerusalem. Don't go up to Jerusalem and, and, and worship over there. He says, Stay right here. Behold the gods of Uli Israel, which brought thee up out of the land of Egypt, kind of recalling what had happened out in the, in the, in the wilderness of Sinai and so on and so forth. And he said, he set the one in Bethel and the other put he in Dan. Notice, in Dan, the northern area of Israel. And he made a house of high places and made priests of the lowest of the people, which were not of the sons of Levi or the sons of Levi. And Jeroboam ordained a feast in the eighth month on the 15th day of the month, like unto the feast that is in Judah. And he offered upon the altar. So did he in Bethel, sacrificing unto the calves that he had made. And he placed in Bethel the priests of the high places which he had made. So he offered upon the altar which he had made in Bethel the 15th day of the 8th month. 
even in the month which he had devised his own, of his own heart and ordained a feast unto the children of Israel, and he offered upon the altar and burnt incense. So that pretty much gives us an indication that Dan not only began to be idol worshipers, but Dan as a tribe also continued on and, 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 and invited it you know, into their particular uh, area of, uh, of the land. On the other hand, Judah will be located closest to the temple. Judah, the tribe of Judah, out of which comes the Lion of Judah, who is Jesus. Judah is the closest to the uh, temple and the sacred district, mainly because its people remain faithful to the Lord longer than any of the other tribes. Were they corrupted at any point in time? Of course they were. They were taken into captivity by the Babylonians. Yet they remained faithful longer than any of the other tribes. So whatever the case, the inheritances of these seven tribes are clear from the scriptures. Even Dan. And one last thing about Dan and also Ephraim. We're told in the book of Revelation, in chapter 7, that 12,000 are sealed from each of the 12 tribes of Israel. You guys can read it yourself. It's Revelation 7, verses 4 through 8. There, there are 12,000 sealed from each of the 12 tribes of Israel, but Dan and Ephraim are not sealed. There are none sealed from those tribes during the uh, tribulation period. And once again, the reason had to do with their idolatry. And the Lord held them accountable for their actions. The reason we know this is because of Deuteronomy 29. In verse 14 and following, it is in the law written, Neither with you only do I make this covenant, uh, covenant and this oath, but with him that standeth here with us this day before the Lord our God, and also with him that is not here with us this day, for you know how we have dwelt in the land of Egypt, and how we came through the nations which you passed by, and you have seen their abominations and their idols, wood and stone, silver and gold, which were among them, lest there should be among you man or woman or family or tribe whose heart turneth away this day from the Lord our God to go and serve the gods of these nations, lest there should be among you a root that beareth gall and wormwood. And it come to pass when he heareth the words of this curse that he bless himself in his heart, saying, I shall have peace, though I walk in the imagination of mine heart to add drunkenness to thirst. The Lord will not spare him. But then the anger of the Lord and his jealousy shall smoke against that man, and all the curses that are written in this book shall lie upon him, and the Lord shall blot out his name from under heaven. And the Lord shall separate him unto evil out of all the tribes of Israel according to all the curses of the covenant that are written in the book of the law. Now the reason for Ephraim not being sealed is found in Hosea 4. Hosea 4, verses 17 through 19. Because there it says, Ephraim is joined to idols, let him alone. Their drink is sour. They have committed whoredom continually. Her rulers uh, with shame do love. Give ye. The wind hath bound up 
bound her up in her wings, and they shall be ashamed because of their sacrifices. So there is why we don't see them sealed in the tribulation period, Revelation chapter 7. And yet, and yet, in the millennial kingdom, as the land is being divided up, Dan is mentioned first. Yes, they're the furthest away from the, from the temple, but they're still there and they still receive their land. Dan is mentioned first to be, uh, and, and, and then Ephraim is also given a portion of land. And even though they will not be sealed during the tribulation period, uh, period because of their idolatry, what we see here is that the Lord gives them their portion, telling us something about our God, telling us that we serve a God who is gracious, a God who is merciful, a God who is forgiving, and a God who is faithful to his promises because he promised his tribes. He promised his people that they would receive their inheritance. And he truly is a good God, isn't he? So understand that certainly those who would come into uh, the millennial kingdom, though they had been in, in, in Dan or in Ephraim as, as tribes that were not blessed during the revelation, nonetheless, they will be there and they will be given land. Let me ask you a question. Do you think they're going to serve the Lord now? I would say they are. I would say they learned quite a lesson in 6,000 years <laughs> within all of history, actually. So the next portion of our text then, which extends from verse 14 through verse 22, deals with the sacred portion of the land surrounding the temple. Verses 10 through 12 deal with the priest's portion, while verses 13 and 14 deal with the Levite's portion. Let's read it. And by the border of Judah, and notice it's really kind of the same language, and by the border of Judah from the east side unto the west side, shall be the offering which you shall offer of five and twenty thousand reeds in breadth. Now, that's speaking of, of the area that the temple is going to be. This is the sacred land. And we'll, we'll note all the places and all the people that are going to be a part of this. So it says, in law, uh, which you shall offer of five and twenty thousand reeds in breadth. That's twenty-five thousand uh, reeds or the reed, of course, was the measure of ten and a half feet. Uh, and in length as one of the, uh, of, of the other parts from the east side unto the west side. And the sanctuary shall be in the midst of it. So it's going to be right in the middle of this, this portion of land. The oblation or the offering that you shall offer unto the Lord shall be of five and twenty thousand in length. And of ten thousand in breadth. And for them even the priests shall be this holy oblation. Toward the north five and twenty thousand in length. And toward the west ten thousand in breadth. Listen, we're not going to, you know, go through every word here. I'm just going to read it. And toward the east, 10,000 in breadth, and toward the south, 5 and 20,000 in length. And the sanctuary of the Lord shall be in the midst thereof. It shall be for the priests. Now, verse 11. It shall be for the priests that are sanctified of the sons of Zadok. Remember, Zadok's priesthood was the, the priesthood that was the most faithful unto God, which have kept my charge, which went not astray when the children of Israel went astray, as the Levites went astray. And this oblation of the land that is offered shall be unto them a thing most holy by the border of the Levites. And over against the border of the priests, the Levites shall have 20, 
or five and twenty thousand in length and twenty, I'm sorry, and ten thousand in breadth. Everything kind of looks the same at, after a while. All the length shall be five and twenty thousand and the breadth ten thousand, and they shall not sell it, neither exchange nor alienate the first fruits of the land, for it is holy unto the Lord. So let me explain as quick as I can. That this portion of land was twenty-five thousand reeds or rods wide having the same length as the allotments given to the tribes from west to east. This was set aside as a special contribution to the Lord. And this portion had four distinct parts. First, the sacred area given to the priests of Zadok. That's the first part. Second, the Levites' land. The Levites got land, even though they were also in trouble with the Lord for a while. Verses 15 through 20 then cover the city land. Verses 15 through 20 cover city, the city land of the city of Jerusalem. While verses 21 and 22 describe the prince's land. Remember him, the prince. Uh, he's a special person in all of this. We don't know really who it is. We don't know him by name. We just know that he's a prince. And uh, the Lord's sanctuary would be in the very center of the priest's territory. To the north of the priest portion would lie the land of the Levites. I think you can see that in the maps. I, I was trying to find some extra maps. I, I, we couldn't find it. That's okay. Um, to the north of the priest portion would lie the land of the Levites. The land would have the same dimensions as that of the priests mentioned. But the Levites will be exhorted. You'll notice the Levites will be exhorted to make sure that they don't sell, exchange, or in any way allow this land to pass to others because it belongs to the Lord. When you think about it, it's, it's all things given by God that belong to him. It's, it's, it's his. It's his land. Just like everything that we have is, is, is not ours. It's his. Belongs to him. And it is holy to him. And when you think about a phrase, and I, I would, I'm going to give this to you as your homework, okay, but... Uh, you know, do it as quickly as you can because if you don't, you will, you'll forget and then you won't do it. Then when the time comes for our test, you're going you're to flunk. <laughs> so what you need to do is study the phrase, holy unto the Lord. What does the Bible say about things that are holy unto the Lord? Well, holy unto the Lord means there are people that are holy unto the Lord. Primarily, it's the Israelites. It's the, the people of the land of Israel. It's the people of Israel. It says, you're holy unto me. You are to be set apart unto me. There are people that are to be holy unto the Lord. There are places that are to be holy unto the Lord. Well, what about the Mount Zion? What about what we're talking about, Jerusalem? The Temple Mount, the new Temple Mount that we're talking about here in chapter 48, 47 and 48. Actually, 40 through 48. The new Temple Mount made by God to rise above everything else on the earth so that everybody has to come up to worship the Lord. The place is holy unto the Lord. There are possessions that are supposed to be holy unto the Lord. These would include the things that God said we needed to make to serve him in, in the worship, to serve him in the sacrifices, to worship in, in, in all that is all. You know, everything is to be holy unto the Lord. And then the purposes of God. The purposes that God sets apart for each and every one of us is to be holy unto the Lord, to be set apart unto the Lord, not unto ourselves, not unto the world, unto the Lord. So if you write anything down about holy, I'm giving you a big clue for your homework. 
holy unto the Lord, people, places, possessions, purposes. And if you do that in a good way, you'll get an A plus when the time comes in the millennial kingdom. Okay, Ezekiel 48, <laughs> verse 15. <laughs> verse 15. And the 5,000 that are left in the breadth over against the five and 20,000 shall be a profane place for the city. Now, let me remind you, what does profane mean here? We're not talking about profane from the standpoint of how we see it in English, which is, you know, we always connect it to profanity. But in the scriptures, profane just means that which is common. That which is common. There is the common and there is the holy. There is the sacred, there is the secular, if you will. So this is the common place. So the five twenty thousand, that, uh, the five thousand that are left in the breadth over against the five and twenty thousand shall be a profane place for the city for dwelling and for suburbs. The word suburbs here is not like you know uh, Eastwood you know, over here or uh, you know whatever we call our little suburbs in El Paso. I guess the place that has the most suburbs is California. You know, they got all kinds. Where do you live? I live in Los Angeles. Yeah, but what part of Los Angeles? Well, I live in this place or in that place. Pomona or, you know, La Puente, you know, Pacoima, whatever, I don't know. I don't even think Pacoima is close. But you, you all get that. Those are, these are suburbs, right? Okay, so there it is. But, but that's not what this word means. I'll tell you why in a moment. All right, so then it says, and the city shall be in the midst thereof. So the city is going to be in this particular portion of the land. And these shall be the measures thereof, the north side 4,500, and the south side 4,500, and notice it's square, and on the east side 4,500, and on the west side 4,500. And the suburbs of the city shall be toward the north, 250, and toward the south, 250, and toward the east, 250, and toward the west, 250. And the residue in length over against the oblation or the offering of the holy portion shall be 1,000 eastward and 10,000 westward. And it shall be over against the oblation of the holy portion. And the increase thereof shall be for food unto them that serve the city. And they that serve the city shall serve it out of all the tribes of Israel. All the oblations shall be five, five and twenty thousand by five and twenty thousand. You shall offer the holy oblation foursquare with the possession of the city. What does that all mean? Well, the land set aside for the city would be 25,000 reeds long on the north and south sides and 5,000 reeds long on the east and west sides. It will be used for the city, the houses, for, and for pasture. It will be used for pasture because the word suburb in the Hebrew is the word migrasha. Migrasha, actually. Migrasha, which means open country where flocks are driven for pasture. That's what it means. The city will be in the exact center of the land, 4,500 4, reeds square with a strip of land, 250 reeds wide all around it on each, on each side. That strip would be used for the pasture land. The remainder of the land will be for growing food. In fact, if you look at those charts that I gave you, there should be an F in there, that's for food. In that, in that portion, I think, that, that has to do with, with the city. And uh, there's an F in there for food. And that's, that's where that is. Um, 
So the remainder of the land will be for growing food for the workers of the city. The workers that farm the land will come from all the tribes of Israel. This is kind of exciting because, you know, we haven't mentioned it, but, you know, when, when, when the thousand-year reign of Christ begins, uh, people are going to be living and doing, and, and, and life goes on, and, and, and there's going to be things to do. It's not going to be boring, but the only difference is that Jesus is going to be there, and he's going to be worshipped, and we're all going to worship him when we get there. Now, I say we because we're, we're actually the ones that are going to come with him, the ten thousands of his saints. The scripture says when he comes to, to rule and reign in Jerusalem, we get to come. We'll get to be there. So if you haven't been to Israel, it's okay. I mean, it would be nice if we can go again. I hope we can one of these days. But eventually, you're just going to be there already. And it's going to be totally different. So if you want to see it the way it is now, you'll go with us when we go the next time. But if you don't care much about what it's going to look like today and you really want to see what it looks like then what well, you're going to be there as long as you know who Jesus is as long as you have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ as long as you are a believer and a true believer in Jesus you'll get to see the city so verse 20 clearly states then that the combined land of the priests Levites and the city will be 25,000 reeds square that's a lot of land but there's a lot of things to do there okay I mean, it's better than Disneyland. All right. Everything's better in Disneyland nowadays. You know, what, you know what social media's done? They got people now with social media, they go in the back, you know, behind the scenes at Disneyland and say, look, this is the things you don't get to see. It's like, whoa, I don't want to go there anymore. Okay, but enough of that. I don't know what got me into that. By the way. Just kind of came, <laughs> there it is. Ezekiel 48, verses 21 and 22. Let's, get, let's read on. And the residue shall be for the prince on the one side and on the other of the holy oblation and of the possession of the city over against the five and 20,000 of the oblation toward the east border and westward over against the five and 20,000 toward the west border. By the way, verse 21 is one of the longest verses anywhere in scripture. It's long. Look at that. That's long. I mean, that's a lot of words there. All right, over against the 520,000 of the oblation toward the east border and westward over against the 520,000 toward the west border, over against the portions for the prince, and it shall be the holy oblation, and remember oblation is offering, and the sanctuary of the house shall be in the midst thereof. Moreover, from the possession of the Levites and from the possession of the city, being in the midst of that which is the princes, between the border of Judah and the border of Benjamin, shall be for the prince." So the land on either side of the sacred portion will be given to the prince. That is, on either side, west and east, will be given to the prince. His land would extend to the national boundaries east and west, as the tribes, uh, tribal areas do and will. In other words, the property of the Levites and the priests, along with the city land, will lie at the very center of the prince's land. So the prince's land surrounds, then, the area that belonged to the priests. To the north will be the land of Judah and to the south, Benjamin. So with that, we conclude the tribe's portions in verses 23 through 29. As for the rest of the tribes from the east side unto the west side, Benjamin shall have a portion. And by the border of Ju Benjamin from the east side unto the west side, Simeon shall have a portion. And by the border of Simeon from the east side unto the west side, Issachar, a portion. And by the border of Issachar from the east side unto the west side, Zebulun, a portion. And by the border of Zebulun from the east side unto the west side, Gad, 
a portion. And by the border of Gad at the south side southward, the border shall be even from Tamar unto the waters of strife in Kadesh and to the river toward the great sea. This is the land which you shall divide by lot unto the tribes of Israel for inheritance, and these are their portions, saith the Lord God. So it is the Lord God himself that determined that all of his people would inherit their own portion of land. His people can rest assured that they will inherit the land promised to them. And of course, ever since Abraham, the inheritance of the promised land has been one of God's greatest promises to all who follow him. Keep in mind that the promised land is a picture of heaven. The promised land is a picture of heaven and is a picture also of eternal life, which all believers will receive when they pass from this life into the next. I want you to listen to the words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 6. I've alluded to them the last couple of weeks, but I want to lay them out before you word for word. Jesus said, lay not up for yourselves treasures upon earth, where moth and rust doth corrupt, and where thieves break through and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust doth corrupt, and where thieves do not break through nor steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. It always makes me think about where our hearts are when we consider so much of what is in the world today. When our, 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 our thoughts move toward the things of the world, the things that only matter in the world and not really to, to the Lord, when things don't matter uh, about, you know, from, from the eternal perspective. And, and I think that we, we sometimes gloss over this statement that Jesus made, but yet it's the, the most powerful of the three verses that we just read. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be. That's where it's going to be. If our treasure is only on this earth, if it's only in things, listen, we can go to church week in and week out. We can praise the Lord with the best of them. We can even be good givers. And then we can leave here and then just be completely overwhelmed by the things of the world. But purpose, purposely overwhelmed. We give God one day. That's what some people do. They give God one day. Is that enough? Every day is supposed to be the Lord's day. Not just one day. Every day. Every day belongs to him. And he's given us every day so that every day we wake up looking to him. Calling out to him. Praising him. Worshiping him. Honoring him blessing him where your treasure is there will your heart be we can lose everything in this world and never lose one thing in heaven because our trust isn't in the things of this earth our trust is in the God who created everything 
At least it needs to be. And then Jesus said in John 14, verses 1 through 3, Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God. Believe also in me. I hope you never get tired of the fact that I say this almost every week. I read it almost word for word. I hope you never get tired of hearing it. Because I'll tell you this, I never get tired of saying it. I never get tired of reading it. Jesus said, in my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am there, ye may be also. These are the promises that Jesus is making. But they only matter to the people who believe, who truly believe and trust in Jesus. Think about what Paul says in Philippians 3, 20 and 21. He says, for our conversation is in heaven. In other words, our conduct is in heaven. Just like our treasure is in heaven. From whence also we look for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall change our vile body that it may be fashioned like unto his glorious body. This is the rapture of the church, folks. It's a reference to the rapture. Who shall change our vile body that it may be fashioned like unto his glorious body according to the working whereby he is able even to subdue all things unto himself. Let's start believing in the things that the scripture says about Jesus coming again. I'm going to gather you unto myself so that where I am there you'll be. I'm going to change your vile body into a glorious body like mine. How? In a moment. In the twinkling of an eye. At the last trump. That's when. And, and, and you know, if people don't believe that. If you don't want to believe it, I'm not going to force you. Right? not going to happen because it has to come from the heart I don't believe this I don't believe that well then you know if you read the word of God and you don't believe it then that's the problem you can't believe anything then if you can't believe what Jesus has promised to do then you can't believe John 3.16 and you'll probably not believe Genesis 1 verse 1 so where's your heart all right, we've got to finish. Let's consider the city and its gates. Let's go back to Ezekiel 48, verse 30. And these are the goings out of the city on the north side, 4,500 measures. And the gates of the city shall be after the names of the tribes of Israel. Three gates northward, one gate of Reuben, one gate of Judah, and one gate of Levi. And at the east side, 4,500, in other words, the, uh, they believe it's the cubits here, and three gates, and one gate of Joseph, and one gate of Benjamin, and one gate of Dan. Notice Joseph, not Manasseh and Ephraim. So now it's Joseph. The two tribes combined because they come from Joseph. One gate of Benjamin and one gate of Dan. If you remember back in verse 31, 
gate of Levi. Now Levi is mentioned. Why? Because these were the sons of Jacob. And the, the south side, 4,500 measures and three gates, one gate of Simeon, one gate of Issachar, and one gate of Zebulun. At the east side, I'm sorry, the west side, 4,500 with their three gates, one gate of Gad, one gate of Asher, and one gate of Naphtali. It was round about 18,000 measures, and the name of the city from that day shall be Yahweh Shammah. Yahweh Shammah, or Jehovah Shammah, or Hashem Shammah. The city of Jerusalem, in other words, will be the capital in the new land of Messiah. The very seat of Messiah's government will be Jerusalem. And there won't be a Palestinian organization, there won't be a United Nations organization, and there won't be all these other organizations that rise up and say, you can't do that, ah, like they've been doing in the last you know, few months when President Trump declared you know, that he was going to move the U.S. Embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem and say, I recognize Jerusalem as the capital of Israel. Praise the Lord. We already knew that. <laughs> Everybody who reads the scriptures know that. The very seat of Messiah's government will be Jerusalem. And if that is the case, then we may as well say that Jerusalem will actually become the capital of the world. It will become the capital of the world, which means it will be the most prominent city on earth. And how prominent can it be if, if, in, if, if it's raised above all the other cities, like, like the scripture tells us? So what does that mean? It's, it means that Washington isn't. It is the capital of the world, not Washington, not Moscow, not Pyongyang, and, and, and especially not Rome. Not Rome. We give names to all of these places, you know. Oh, it's the eternal city. No, there's only one eternal city. It's Jerusalem. The Bible's very clear about that. Because you see, at a given time, the Bible says there will not only be a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness will dwell, there will be a new Jerusalem. Jerusalem is the eternal city. Because that's God's city. And he built it. And he loves it. Scripture declares that the leaders of the nations will stream into the holy city of God. And here's the, here's the reason. They're going to do business there as well as worship the Lord. Yeah, there's, there's still going to be nations that will come for, uh, I mean, because nations will be functioning throughout all of the earth. But they're going to come to Jerusalem. They're going to come before the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the ruler and the one who reigns there. But they're also going to worship the Lord. Isaiah 66 verse 18 says, For I know their works and their thoughts, it shall come, that I will gather all nations and tongues, and they shall come and see my glory. The nations shall come and see the glory of God. And the glory of God is Jesus Christ himself. Jeremiah 3, 17 says, At that time they shall call Jerusalem the throne of the Lord. 
at that time, pointing to the millennial kingdom. At that time, they shall call Jerusalem the throne of the Lord, and all the nations shall be gathered unto it, to the name of the Lord, to Jerusalem. Neither shall they walk anymore after the imagination of their evil heart. There won't be any evil like there was after the creation of man and after the fall. Zechariah 8 verse 23 says, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, In those days it shall come to pass that ten men shall take hold out of all languages of the nations, even shall take hold of the skirt of him that is a Jew, saying, We will go with you, for we have heard that God is with you. I'll tell you this, that, that's not happening today. They're not trying to take and hold onto the skirt of a Jew and say, hey, take us with you. They say, hey, we're going to take you out. And they've been doing that for the last 4,000 years. It's going to be different. Obviously, Jews will be very noticeable. And they will be light when all they were was darkness for so long the Jew in the millennial kingdom will be light and people will come to him and say take us with you because we've heard that God is with you and God will truly be with Israel in that kingdom Psalm 86 verse 9 all nations whom thou hast made shall come and worship before thee O Lord and shall glorify thy name what are we waiting for? We should be glorifying the name of the Lord every day of our lives as believers. And the name is the name above all names. Yeshua, Jesus, for God is salvation. A quick note. The city is going to be 1.5 miles square. It's going to have those 12 gates, three on either side, or on each side, I should say each one representing one of the 12 tribes of Israel. We saw that in the text. And then lastly, I already mentioned it, but this is what we're looking forward to. The fact that the Lord is there. That is what the name Yahweh Shama means. Yahweh Shama. The Lord is there. There he is. Can't miss him. He's there, he doesn't go away. He doesn't take vacation. He doesn't leave a sign, gone fishing. He already did the fishing. The kingdom of God will be among us as Jesus rules and reigns. So for the Jews that were in captivity during the time of Ezekiel, this should have been great news to give them hope. This was the whole purpose, was to bring them hope that their Messiah still loved them and their Messiah would come and rule and reign for them in the very city that they themselves had allowed to be destroyed because of what they had done. So for us today, as we live in a world that is full of violence, in a world that is full of chaos, and in a world that is full of sin and demonic wickedness, it should also be great and hopeful news. We should be looking up like Jesus told us to. We should be lifting up our heads like Jesus said, that we should because he said your redemption draweth nigh your redemption is drawing near folks it's 2,000 years later and you know what we're closer now than ever before and the Lord does things 
in patterns, doesn't he? Thousand years means something to the Lord. Thousands of years means something to the Lord. 6,000 years means something to the Lord. Because on the Jewish calendar, they're in some 57-something years you know, uh, uh, on the Jewish calendar. But that doesn't, that doesn't include a lot of other stuff that took place. So when it comes right down to it, we're getting very, very close to the end. And so numbers matter. Dates matter. Time matters. The Bible says signs matter. There are going to be signs in the heavens. Jesus warned us of the signs that were going to happen during the end time, during the time that we call the last days or the last things that will be happening. We spent a considerable amount of time talking about those on Wednesday nights and every opportunity that we can on Sunday mornings because, because we need to get ready for the coming of the Lord. We don't want to be caught off guard. We don't want to be caught as if to say, you know, well, you know, if we, if we get so entrenched in this world and, and into the things of the world, something's going to be missing. So it's best to get our hearts and our, and our lives right with God today and, to, and, and from this day forward. And every day that we meet, that we, listen, even when we're not together, we should be seeking the Lord to change our hearts to make us more like Jesus each and every day of our lives. Because those things that are happening right now, the violence, the chaos, the sin, the demonic wickedness, the, the principalities and powers, the rulers of darkness, the, the spiritual wickednesses in high places, all those things that are happening today, I mean, this, this is in our day and time more than ever before. And it's even more tragic because there is so much more of the technology of this day and age that causes it to be even in a, in a greater sense more dangerous. The times are perilous as they, enough as it is, but they're more perilous because of what man can do to man with the technology that he, that he now has. And we're, we're learning in our governments today, if we watch the right news sources, because <laughs> you can watch the wrong news sources and just be totally confused, you know. I'll tell you this, if you read the Bible, you'll find the right source because discernment comes to you and you say, what those people are saying, that's really dumb. But what these people are saying, they're, they're making it clear. So we need to understand what's happening in the world. So when we're taking our, uh, you know, our Bibles and we're looking at what Jesus is saying and these things are happening, I mean, it should awaken us, it should stir our hearts to really take hold of the Lord Jesus Christ in, in, in our daily walk each and every day and just surrender to him. Be like Paul who said, I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. In the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Die to self, live for Christ. I mean, these are the things that the Lord would have us to do. Some of you would say, well, that's, that's Paul, but we're not Paul. No, you're not. But if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you're the same as Paul. And if Paul said it, you can say it too. Let me close in Isaiah 40, verses 10 and 11. It says in uh, Isaiah 40, verse 10, Behold, the Lord God will come with strong hand, and his arm shall rule for him. I say this many times, but who is his arm? Jesus. You know, why is Jesus at the right hand of God? 
Because Jesus is the right arm of God. Because Jesus is the right hand of God. So whenever you see the right arm or the right hand of God in Scripture, especially in the Old Testament, just know that that's talking about Jesus. Because that's where he is, at the right hand of the Father. It says, Behold, the Lord will, give, will come with strong hand, and his arm shall rule for him. Behold, his reward is with him, and his work before him. He shall feed his flock like a shepherd. He shall gather the lambs with his arm and carry them in his bosom and shall gently lead those that are with young. The, the thought that just came to mind in one second was that that, how, that is how the Lord is going to take us home. Because he said, I'm going to take you, I'm going to receive you unto myself so that where I am, there you will be also. How's he going to do it? He gathers his lambs with his arm. Doesn't even need two arms. And tie the other one behind his back. Gather us with his arm. And carry them in his bosom. Right here. And shall gently lead those that are with young. That's how much our God cares for us. But we need to be ready. Because he's coming. You know, he's come for some already. Through death. Because death is a reality in this life. But if those for whom he came had given their lives to Jesus Christ, then today they're in his presence. And there will be a time when the dead in Christ shall rise first. And we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them to meet the Lord in the air. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. Comfort one another with these words. The church needs to be comforted. But the only way we can be comforted is to believe the truth about Jesus Christ. It is to believe the truth about his lordship, his kingship, his messiahship, and his rule and reign in Jerusalem for a thousand years. So we need to be ready. But let's do that.